Hey, Rockbridge, I want to welcome you to all six of our locations and those of you who are engaged through online connections. Thank you for being here. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team. We're just going to be jumping into God's Word together in a few minutes, but I definitely want to remind you of what we call our most important service of the month. That's First Wednesday. First Wednesday in October is coming up this week at all six of our locations. If you can't be there physically, you can be there digitally through our online connections platform. Just want to encourage you to do that. We remember we just finished six consecutive Wednesday prayer and fasting services. I hope you got to participate, and I hope you know and have experienced firsthand how special these services are, but more importantly, how essential they are to the health of our church as we seek to uh, be Christ, show Christ, and declare the gospel of Christ to our world, to our communities, as we seek to love one another, as we pray for one another, as we're going through sicknesses and adversity, and then as we just love God back by worshiping Him, praying to Him, and observing the Lord's Supper. So first Wednesday, six physical locations across uh, northwest Georgia and the greater Tennessee Valley, and then also online. So we are in the middle of this series navigating through the entire book or the entire letter in 1 Corinthians, which is found in the New Testament. Today, we're going to be the last part of chapter 6, first half of chapter 7. And what we talked about last week that really helps us understand what Paul is doing in, in mostly chapter 6 and 7, it'll, 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 it'll go into 8 a little bit, it is illustrated by what we called last week the God box. And what we said is that all of us, you, we, we walked in here with a God box. And, and the God box is stuff that you have put into God's control or you've surrendered to God or this is the stuff you go to God with or you go to God for, right? So everybody, when it comes time to talk about a funeral, everybody's got a God box. I, I've never encountered anybody that didn't. Uh, some of us, you know, your God box may include like who you're going to marry uh, some of us, you know, your God box may include, you know, how you think about your money, but all of us have a God box, and if it's in the God box, it's stuff we go to God for or we've yielded to God. Now, if it's outside of the God box, you kind of are, 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 you're in control of that, or culture is, or society is, and, and so you just go with what you know, or go with what tradition says, or go with how you were raised, and it's not impacted by God. Now, what we discovered last week is, is a couple of realities. One there should be no God box because of the gospel that God has, been, has proven himself to love us the most, love us the best, and love us the longest, which is forever. And he's proven in the resurrection that he's Lord of all. And so all things should go in the God box, or there's really no God box. Everything should be under his leadership. But the second reality is we're a work in progress, right? Nobody, no, there's no perfection in, in, in this room including the guy here with the microphone that you're watching. There's no perfection, but there's a new direction when we're following Christ. And so over time, as God changes us and transforms us, more aspects of our lives ought to be given over to God, put into our God box, or our God box should go, eventually go away where we live in complete submission and surrender to Him and realize the blessings of, and the joy of His fullness in our lives uh, when we do that kind of thing. Now, when we jump to this next section in Corinthians, there's a lot of things going on. So in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, the last half of 7, Paul is going to be dealing with a lot of issues that, you know, man, you, you think we got it crazy in America. Let's think about this. There were Christians 
who were going to the prostitutes and, uh, and, and obtaining pleasure in, in, in prostitution. There were Christians in marriage who they were practicing celibacy in their marriage. So you have Christians engaging with prostitutes, and you have married Christians who are being, uh, practicing celibacy. There's the issue of divorce. You, because the gospel had just come to Corinth, you had Christians who, who came to faith in Christ, but when they did, their husband or their spouse did not. And so they were like, do we get divorced now? Because that's, I'm married to a non-Christian. And so you had all that kind of stuff going on. And so the, kind of the big three things, you had hedonism, which is, man, pleasure and just pursue pleasure. Asceticism, which is like severe discipline, almost of a punitive nature. Like I can't have any fun and anything that's fun is wrong. And then what we talked about last week, dualism, and the dualism is, hey, there's certain things that are in the God box, there's certain things that are not. Sundays, uh, Sunday at church is God box, Monday at work is, you know, I got to do what I got to do, right? So those are the issues that Paul is dealing with in this section of this incredibly uh, rich and important and relevant letter. Now, here's where we want to go with this. So you got th these crazy things going on, right? Th these things that maybe in your mind, you're like, man, it's just so simple. But here's what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't just come out and give them a list. He doesn't just come out and say, okay, stop prostituting yourselves. If you're married, sex is okay in, inside of the context of marriage. He doesn't just come out and give them a list of these three things, make divorce acceptable and all that kind of stuff. He, he doesn't do that. So why does Paul not just give us a list? Because for many people, that's what your faith in God is. It's a list that your God box is defined by three or four thou shalt nots and three or four things you do, and that's you and God, and that defines your relationship with God, and that's your God box. And, and so, and a lot of us, when we think of Scripture, we're like, man, God gave a big list one time, and we call it the Ten Commandments, and so when we're facing all these crazy issues, why doesn't Paul just give a bullet point list? Man, wash his hands with it. He's done it. He's created clarity. God doesn't just give us a list of do's and don'ts. Because God wants us to be able to think. One of the greatest capacities we have, and one of the aspects of being created in the Imago Dei or in the image of God, which every human being is created in His image, that image has been broken and, and marred a little bit by sin, but one of the great um, <coughs> manifestations of the image of God in us is we can think. And we can think as, as part of our freedom, as part of our ability to create, as part of our ability to represent, Mago Day, our Creator. Now, our thinking has been affected by sin. None of us thinks correctly. None of us thinks or accurately all the time. Our thinking is darkened. Our thinking is fallen. But here's what God knows. God wants us to have the best life possible. God wants us to bring glory to Him and so our thinking, and, and, and you, don't, you don't even have to believe a believer to, know, to believe this, our thinking shakes the, shapes the direction of our living. And, and so if your life's going to change, I would say this to you, your thinking's got to change. Uh, if you're going to have a better marriage, well, you got to think differently. If you're going to be better at work, you got to think differently. It's not just your circumstances, it's kind of what's going on uh, up here in our brains. And so God's goals for us is He wants us to be the will of God in our lives, our living, or to bring about the will of God in our lives or our living. So when you show up at your job, God wants you to represent Him there. 
and he can't give you 27 do's and don'ts because he wants to use your brain and your thinking, so he wants your thinking to be transformed so that you can be or bring about his will in your job. And we said this last week, there, not, not everything in our lives is covered by a specific Bible verse or Bible story or Bible principle. And, and so God is as trying to transform us, and he starts at the level of our thinking. This is why later on, we haven't gotten here yet, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say this, brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil, which would mean have nothing to do with it, and in ad- an adult in your thinking. So he's aiming at their thinking and where we're going uh, this, this, this weekend in the Scriptures. In Romans 12, it says, don't be conformed to this age. So don't be conformed to Corinth or Dalton or Cleveland or Hickson or Calhoun or whatever. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. And how are we transformed? We're not transformed because God gives us a new set of circumstances. We're not transformed because God brings suddenly, you know, health and wealth and prosperity into our lives from a materialistic standpoint. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Change your thinking, change your living. So that you can discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. See, a lot of us believe you don't discern the will of God. God kind of ahas you with it, right? God is just like, oh, this is what you need to do. And what Paul says over and over, and this is not just in Romans, is we have to discern, think in order to discover the perfect, pleasing will of God so that our God box either goes away or we know how to take our jobs and put it in the God box, take our parenting and put it in the God box, take whatever situation, circumstance, relationship we're in and put it in the God box so our lives align with the kingdom of God and our lives look more and more like Christ. Let me detour just for a minute. I think there's a subset of Christianity that puts a high value in what we might call like prophetic word, right? And that's certainly one of the spiritual gifts of people speaking prophecies, people speaking truth. But there's a lot of people that believe the will of God, the only way it comes to us is through some aha, burning bush, prophetic message. And what I would say is that's not the majority of the case. The majority of the time, God wants his people to discern because that's how we grow to look like Christ. We wrestle with our own broken thinking. We submit our thinking, submit ourselves, allow ourselves to be transformed by the Word of God, the people of God, the Spirit of God, for the glory of God, and we begin to think differently and thus live differently. So when you go to work tomorrow, you're not like, oh, I need a prophetic word for how to act nine to five. No, your mind has been transformed. When you go home after a long day of work and then you've got to interact with your crazy kids and, and your exhausted spouse, you're not like, God, how do I do handle this? No, your mind has been transformed. And so you live as Christ would live in your home, in your job, in the world God has placed you, and your God box gets smaller because you look more like Jesus in more of your life. So God's goal for us is not compliance with just certain instructions. That's why Paul didn't come out and say, quit going to the prostitutes, quit doing this. No, it's conformity to his son that we look more and more like Jesus. And, and the, you know, a lot of us are like, well, Jesus was never married. And, uh, and a lot of us are like, well, Jesus never had my job or Jesus never played football. And yet Scripture says anyone who says he's a Christian should live as, as Christ did. That doesn't mean we should all go become carpenters. That doesn't mean we, we're, we should all, you know, walk around with sandals on our feet, right? What that means is we think 
in terms of who we are in Christ, how we're to be in Christ, in terms of our character and how we represent him, we submit ourselves, we're transformed so that if Jesus had your job, had your family, had your income, you live as he would live because you're thinking as he would think. So let's jump into 1 Corinthians 6 and see how Paul navigates through marriage, prostitution, celibacy, divorce, and all these myriad of issues. Everything is permissible for me. This is like a, a slogan, a saying, a cliche, a tweet, if you will, that was going around in the first century. The Christians were saying it. They're like, hey, I can do what I want to do. And, and we've got our slogans too. And when you have a slogan, you don't think, right? You just kind of, oh yeah, you know, uh, God wants me to be happy. So here's what I'm going to do. Everything is permissible but for me. And then Paul says, but And now we're not in the saying anymore. Paul says, no, but not everything is beneficial or not everything is helpful. Another saying, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered, brought under the control of, brought under the authority of anything. So Paul is saying, listen, you're living by a slogan that's prevalent in culture, but you're not thinking it through. There's there's more to everything is permissible. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Okay, just because you can doesn't mean it's ultimately good for you or for other people. Another saying was this, food is for the stomach and stomach for food. And what they were saying basically is, just like I I eat to bless my stomach and my stomach was made for food, my body was made for sex. And this was a hedonistic justification. Man, if it feels good, do it, right? We've got our slogans too, right? So food is for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. So Paul's like, hey, eventually certain certain impulses and desires are going to go away. However, and Paul's very emphatic here, the body is not for sexual immorality. But, let's think about it, the body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's like, why do you have a body? And, and, And Paul's like, look, you're thinking of the body purely as a biological uh, organism, you're thinking of your body purely in terms of desires and impulses, and that's the only way you're thinking about it. But your body is for the Lord. Now, he's going to expand upon that a little bit later, but when we meet the text here, what he's saying is going on in Corinth is, listen, you're operating by these cultural slogans, but there's no real thinking going on. You ever said this or thought about this? Man, I just do this without even thinking about it. I don't even need to think about it. And, and, and if someone challenges you, you, man, you've got your slogan. You've got your cliche. You've got that, you know, inspirational quote you heard when you were 21, and you've tried to live by it ever since in that area of your life, but you just quit thinking about it. And Paul's like, no, we can't do that. That's why he doesn't just come out and say, quit going to prostitutes, you know, enjoy your marriage with your wife or your husband. He comes out and he wants them to think, and so he just starts to build a case of how you should be thinking about sex, your body, divorce, celibacy, and singleness will come up, all of those different aspects because he wants their thinking to inform and shape their living so they live as Christ would live. So four ingredients, we're going to talk about four ingredients of Christian thinking, and he's already kind of given us three of those ingredients. The first one is the purpose of love. He said, you know, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this in two weeks, but he says not everything is beneficial. So there's a lot of people who go around and are like, man, if it feels good, do it. Uh, if there's nothing really wrong with it, I can do it. Um, man, nobody got hurt today from it. 
uh, you know, what, I can do what I want to do. God wants me to be happy, so this makes me happy so I can do it. And Paul's like, yeah, but not everything is loving. And Christians of all people who have tasted the glorious love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christians of all people know how to get love right. But to give love right, you have to get love right. Excuse me. You and I have to think, is this the most loving thing I can do? Is this how I should love this person? And Paul's like, like, listen, if you're not thinking along those lines and you're just uh, taking a slogan, man, if it feels good, do it. You're not thinking it through. You're not thinking it through. The next ingredient of Christian thinking Paul brings up is the problem of authority. He says, listen, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's, it's necessarily the right thing to do because sometimes you do things and then they become the master of you. So it's the problem of authority. So we can do things without thinking about it just because everybody else is doing it or because that's what you do on Friday nights around here or that's what, you're supposed, that's what the culture says you're supposed to do with your body and the next thing, you're controlled by that. How many of us today, nobody raise your hand, how many of us today have some level of be, to some extent, you're mastered by what culture says your body ought to look like or be like? How many of us today, when we look ourselves in the mirror, are, are looking at ourselves through some lens that was handed to us by culture? So to an extent, we're being controlled by culture when it comes to our body image, males and females, males and females. How, how many of us in here today did something one time that then took control of us and, and, and we wish we could rewind? How, so we, uh, what we need, what Paul is saying is, hey, listen. You and I are designed by God to be under an authority. You are going to be over, uh, all of us are to one extent or another, in one form or fashion, are under someone or something's authority. I mean, when the, when the hurricane that just kind of has come through Florida and, 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 and up into the Atlantic with a vengeance, right, that just reminds us, hey, nature's, nature's pretty powerful. And we're under the authority of nature to some extent, right? And, and, and you know, we don't like that thinking, but Paul's saying, listen, just because you can go have sex with those prostitutes, you might get mastered by that. By that. It might become a habit. That might become addiction. And you might go farther than you want to go. And we could say that about a lot of things. The third ingredient that he's already brought up in these couple of verses is the promise, or we're going to get to in verse 14, is the promise of the kingdom of Christ. So, so there's a view uh, going on in Corinth and going on in our, that, that, that our bodies are just our bodies, right? That our bodies eventually just kind of wear out and go away. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. you got to understand something. God has a plan and a purpose for your body both here and now and then and there. So he says this, God raised up the Lord. He's talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on what we call Easter. And he's also going to raise us up by his power. That's the second coming promise. So in the second coming, we're going to have a body. And he, what he's saying is, look, so if your body matters then, and how you use your body it, to glorify God is going to matter then, when Jesus comes back, second coming, second the new kingdom, heaven and earth, then your body matters now. So you and I, what he's saying is you need to live now in light of then. 
Live now in the temporary body in light of the fact that then when you get a resurrection body or live here in Corinth, wherever you and I are, in light of there. So our bodies matter. So you, it's not enough to, oh, I can go do whatever I want to do with my body or I don't have to take care of my body. No, 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 no. Paul's like, no, think about this and line up your thinking with where God is taking all of history. New kingdom and new heaven. Be a wise investor. Your body matters in the new kingdom. So line up your living and your thinking now in light of then. And this is what he does. And he just suddenly takes this casual view of sex, this casual, careless view of the human body with no thinking, and he begins to inform them of some things. And he uses this phrase, and it shows up I don't know, I haven't fully counted, but 8 to 10 to 12, 13 times in Corinthians. Don't you know? It's like you and I, haven't you thought about, you ever said this to your kids, haven't you thought about, hey, what do you think about when you think about it? So he's saying, hey, don't you know, haven't you thought about that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Now, now how many of us woke up this morning, looked yourself in the mirror and said, man, I'm the body of Christ? No, we're like, man, I've got a gray hair or I've got a zit, right? I mean, that's what we did, you know? But he said, stop and think for a second. Stop and think. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's bodies? So, so should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Sex is two people becoming one, a man and a woman becoming one. So those of you who think, man, if it feels good, do it. Those of you who think, man, nobody got hurt. I'm an adult. I can have sex with whoever I want to have it with and whenever I want to have it. So let me go to the prostitute place. He's like, no, 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 you're part of Christ's body. Do you think you can make part of Christ's body one with a prostitute? Have you thought about that? Don't you know? Absolutely not. Another repeat of this phrase. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? So sex is more than just physical. People are like, no, 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 they're not. No, no it is. If, if sex is only physical, then why don't we tell victims of sexual abuse or rape, oh, it's just physical, no big deal. Why does it affect them for years and 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 years? Because it's not just physical. It's never designed to be just physical. It is physical, but it's more than that. That's because it's God's design, not ours. And, and so he's like, look, don't you know that if you join to a prostitute, you're one body with her? For Scripture says, and he quotes the, the marriage passage of Genesis, for the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So you're one with God, and then you're going to use sex to become one with a prostitute. He's like, absolutely not. Don't you know? You haven't thought this through. You've acted on pure feeling, pure emotion, and what the culture has told you through a slogan, feels good, do it, is okay. No. And then he gets, and then we get the first command. Now, he could have started with this command, but he doesn't because he's trying to train the mind and be, transform the mind because you transform the mind, you transfer the life. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body and the body of Christ. And then he gives to me what is the cornerstone couple of verses that really tie all of chapter 6 and chapter 7 together 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Probably one of our memory verses, if you picked up some of the resources in the Connect Here area or on the website, gave you some memory verses from 1 Corinthians as we go through this uh, incredible letter in the New Testament. Don't you know, there it is again, haven't you thought about that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, in the Jewish mindset, the temple is a sacred place, so the body's sacred. This is probably not so much like a spatial thing, but it's like the Holy Spirit impacts, influences, infiltrates the human body and is housed in some way that, in, that, in that capacity. So haven't you thought about your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit? Again, you and I wake up this morning and we groan. If, we're my, you know, if you're 40 or above, like my body is not as you know, flexible as it used to be. Or, or you're a teenager, you wake up, like, oh my gosh, how, what am I going to do with my hair today? Or there's a new zit today, or there's a gray hair today. I mean, that's where we go, right? When's the last time we woke up and said, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And how would that change how you thought about you? How would that change how you thought about your purpose? How would that change how you thought about your day? And how you use your body as you go about your day and take your God box with you, right? So... <laughs> Your body, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Now, there is no more affront and offensive statement that we could make in the 21st century than that one, right? You're not your own. How many times have you heard in the news lately, it's my body, I can do what I want with it? Not if you've been bought and purchased and put your faith in Jesus Christ. No, you can't. No, you can't. You are not your own. So this is a transfer of authority. For you were bought at a price. What price was that? The blood of Jesus Christ. So then, so having thought about these things and understood these things more completely, don't you know, so glorify God with your body. And, and the fourth ingredient that, that shapes Christian thinking is what I'm going to call the prize of the gospel. The gospel being the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus instead of us, Jesus for us, Jesus died for our sins. The prize of the gospel is what? We get God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. God gives His Son to purchase us and the prize that he gives us when we put our faith in what his son has done and who his son is, is God gives us himself, the Holy Spirit. That's the prize of the gospel. So when you think about you, do you think about, you know, you think about, man, I've got a zit today. You think about, man, I can't believe what they said about me. I can't believe what happened to me. When you think about you, you think about, man, do people like me? Do I have what it takes to be successful and acceptable in the world we have? What if you thought about yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit and you have received God himself because of the price Jesus paid for you when he spilled his blood for you? That's life-changing thinking that would show up in our living powerful stuff. Now, Paul's going to get real specific about a specific God box area, and it's the area of marriage. And so what we need to understand with marriage as we navigate forward is marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And, and when, when Paul's going to talk about this, uh, Ephesians 5, starting in about verse 22, is helpful but understand this, I'll just give you 32. This mystery is profound. He's talking about how men and women in marriage treat one another. 
but I am talking about Christ in the church. So men and women in marriage, male and female coming together, that's the only kind of marriage there is, biblically, scripturally, right? Men and women coming together in physical, spiritual, emotional union, paint a picture of Christ and his people, Christ and how he saved his people, and how his saved people, the called out ones of the church, now relate to Christ. So marriage is a picture of the gospel, okay? So let's, let's look at this in chapter 7. Now in response to the matters you wrote about. Now Paul has just come out of this discussion uh, of how to think about your body, how to think about sexuality, how, how to think about all those kind of things. And the linchpin is that 619, you were bought at a price, you're not your own, so glorify God with your body. So he says, now let me talk about the matters you wrote about. They had written Paul a letter and said, Paul, we got some questions for you. Help us think correctly about these issues. So they wrote to Paul, and apparently they said this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this is kind of the celibacy group or the asceticism group that basically said, hey, this rigorous discipline of I'm not going to engage in sexual relationships. Now, the challenge is they were saying this while they were married to, to, to people, right? And, and so here's what Paul says, and here's how he responds. So in response to this quote, this statement that they made to Paul in the letter they apparently wrote to him, he says, well, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. So you don't need to be celibate in your own marriage. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. Now remember what we just read, verse 619, chapter 619. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. And that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Keep those in mind. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. That's coming right out of the gospel. That you and I were bought at a price. Christ the Spirit, in hell, in, is, we're his temple, so glorify God with your body. And marriage is illustrating that submission. Marriage is illustrating that we are under the authority of another. So Paul says, hey, listen, those of you who are like going celibate inside marriage, don't deprive one another, except when you agree for a time. So there may be a season where you fast from sexual relations inside of man and woman marriage. And if you're doing that, you're devoting yourselves to prayer. You're taking that energy and devoting it to prayer. Well, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. <coughs> so understand and think about it. So here's what we have. The prize of the gospel is oneness with God, union with God, marriage pictures or portrays that oneness between man and woman, joining together physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, relationally, all of those ways. And sex is a demonstration of that oneness that brings blessing and, and does give pleasure to the body. But these are all, sub so this is the number one Marriage is subordinate to this, and sex is subordinate to this. So sex is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. God is ultimate. 
okay? Then he goes on, and he's going to talk about singleness, and he's going to talk about people who aren't having sexual relations. Here's what he says. I say this as a concession, not a command. So what I'm about to say is not a command. What I'm about to say is not something you have to do or follow. But I wish that all people were as I am. Paul is single. Paul is celibate. But each has his own gift from God, and each person has this gift, another has that gift. So not everybody has, has the same gifts and the same strengths. And so Paul is, apparently is saying he has the gift of, of celibacy, and he's enjoying the gift of being single. That's what he's saying. So I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am. So you, let me say this to the church. There's a lot of shaming that indirectly goes to single people. Like there's something wrong with them if they're single. You be careful with that because that's not biblical. Singleness can be and often is a gift from God because everyone is single and most people will be single again. So it's good for them if they remain as I am, Paul says. So you be careful about saying, hey, when are you going to settle down and find someone? That's not your call. That could be God's gift to them. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. So what is he really saying? If we zoom out and we say this, listen, he's saying singleness is special, should not be devalued nor wasted, but rather stewarded for the glory of God. He's also saying this, marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. A lot of people think that I mean, marriage is how I'm going to be happy. Marriage is how I'm going to be fulfilled. Marriage is how I fulfill my purpose. No, marriage is not ultimate. And sex, Paul says, is not necessary to happiness. Go read Philippians and see how much joy has. Go read Philippians and see much, how much joy Paul has when he's in prison in a Philippian jail cell. So he's single, he's celibate, and he's in prison, and he's full of joy. There's a lot of people who are married having sex whenever they want to have it, who are miserable. So he's teaching what's ultimate and what's not because what's ultimate is God. He's both ultimate and he's necessary to ultimate happiness. So he's just, all of this is thinking, all of this is understanding and appropriating the gifts of the gospel. Now he's going to turn and talk a little bit about divorce. He says, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. So now he's talking emphatically. He's speaking with apostolic authority. He's speaking with the same authority that Jesus spoke when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, for example. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, divorces, she must remain unmarried or she needs to be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So she must remain celibate and unmarried. Because the only place you can have marriage, or excuse me, the only place you can have sex is inside of marriage, male and female, period. That's what your body's for. And that's where sex belongs, period. So if you're just going to quickly, you know, leave marriage, remain unmarried, remain celibate, or go be reconciled to your husband. And the same applies to husbands. Now, why is he saying that? Because what does marriage represent? The gospel. What is the gospel? Us becoming one with God. Us becoming the temple of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'll say. We cannot just unwind what God has made one, which is a marriage. 
And when you unwind something, there's pain, there's consequences, there's challenges, spiritually, physically, emotionally, theologically, all of the above, right? So we can't just rush to divorce. We can't just rush to remarriage. We can't just rush around and treat something so significant so casually and so lightly. Because marriage portrays the gospel. And the gospel is us becoming one with God because we were bought with a price. We are not our own. So glorify God with your body. He continues the thought. He says, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So again, remember, first century, Christianity comes to Corinth. A woman hears the gospel. A man hears the gospel. They say yes to Jesus, put their faith in Jesus. Their husband says or their wife says no or, or, or doesn't hear the gospel or doesn't accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. So now I've got a believer married to a non-believer. Some of you are in that situation too. He must not divorce her because marriage, God makes one. You can't unone what God has made one. Also, though, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. That's not to say they're saved by. What he's saying is they're affected by. And they, if, they, if they came to church together, the, the church would welcome the unbeliever in, and they would hear the gospel, and they would receive and see Christians interacting, and something of God can happen from that. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Same for the kids. They're going to be under the influence of at least one godly parent. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. So that's kind of called abandonment. So really, there's adultery and abandonment that are biblical grounds for divorce. And that makes sense, right? Because if you commit adultery, you won yourself with someone else, just like the Christian who's going with the prostitute, which was the last part of chapter 6. And so you're kind of unwanting the oneness that God made. And if you abandon and say, I want nothing to do with you, you're unwanting the oneness of marriage. And so that's the allowance for divorce that Paul is trying to, to teach and talk through. So a brother or sister is not bound in such cases, not bound to stay in that marriage. God has called you to live in peace. And he says, now he says this, I want you to think about something, though, ladies. For all you know, you might save your husband. So you're married to an unbelieving husband. For all you know, let's think about it. They might come to Christ because of you, your testimony, your witness, your example, and how you love them or love him. And husbands, for all you know, let's think about it. You might save your wife. Let's think about it. So we've covered a lot of material. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some homework, Okay. Nobody's going to ask you if you did it or not. Maybe in your small groups, maybe you and your wife can talk about it, talk about it with your kids. I just want to ask you to think for a week about something. And maybe you, you print this out, put it on your lock screen on your phone, look at it on the mirror when you shave in the morning or put your deodorant on or fix your hair. I want you to think for a week. Start your day or end your day or at some time during your day, think for a week about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Think for a week. Think deeply about it. Meditate. Ponder. What does it mean for you? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, the prize of the gospel. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So glorify God with your body so that wherever you go, you live as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You represent God everywhere you go. There is no God box. Your life is designed to be the presence of God wherever he takes you, with whomever you're around all the days of your life. Don't you know, one more time, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Let's pray together. God, I believe there's some people here today who when they look at themselves in the mirror, see something less than you see. I just want to pray in the name of Jesus, the authority of your word, they would see who you see. Someone that you deemed worthy to shed the precious blood of your son for and someone that you would like to put your spirit into if they put their faith and trust in you. God, I believe there's some people here today who are in a... In a enslavement to what the world says the body is. Maybe they're addicted to certain pleasures. Maybe they feel shame when they look at themselves because they don't look like what the world says they should look like. Would you bring freedom to them today? God, there are some people today who would say, I am under the authority of a bad master. God, may they see you as the only master, worthy enough, good enough, awesome enough to give our surrender to. And may they surrender to you today for the first time to be their Lord and Savior. Or may they just come back to you and surrender something to you and put it in their God box. God, just have your way in people today. Have your way in our minds today so that we may think of ourselves as we are in Christ or as we could be if we gave our faith to you, Jesus. It's in your great name we pray.